Good morning, everyone. This is Kristen Eikimmer with the Foundation for Government Accountability. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Built to Win podcast. There's so much going on in the economy these days. And while so many people point to basic economic talking points and conclusions, many of us forget that our own decisions and behavior influences the world's economy every day. Joining me today to discuss this idea of human flourishing and humanity's impact on the economy is David Bonson, founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group. He is consistently named as one of the top financial advisors in America and is passionate about the integration of faith and economics. Recently, he authored the book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, which is a great read. We will be discussing this throughout the show. Thanks for joining us today, David. Well, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Before we start, here at the Foundation of Accountability, we believe that work is a miracle. And I just wanted to kind of get a little perspective of what was your first exposure to, you know, clocking in and what was your first job? Well, there's two different answers because my first job clocking in, I was 15 years old and I passed out samples of fruit shake smoothies for the flying fruit fantasy inside the atrium court at the Fashion Island Mall in Newport Beach, California. So I literally clocked in and clocked out for that job. But when I was 12 years old, I wanted to buy a Commodore 64 computer in the mid 80s. And my parents said I could buy it, but I had to pay for it. And so I pushed a lawnmower all around my neighborhood and got a little route of uh, very nice neighbors that let me mow their lawn and did that all summer and saved up the money for the computer. So those are the first two experiences in the workforce that I had as a very young man. Yeah, no, that's awesome. My brother actually kind of did the same thing with snow plows because we're from Chicago. So same idea. Definitely there's some perspective to be gained from both of those positions. Did your perspective change after, you know, having to earn that? computer you said? Yeah, it was was a computer and probably not one that you would have heard of, but maybe some of the listeners would remember because before, you know, the Apple craze and and all the Microsoft and Windows stuff of the 90s, back in the 80s, the Commodore 64 was a pretty hot little commodity and it's 64K floppy disk that you could put in it. And there's no question it helped form me and shape me. And then even into a later phase of life with much more dramatic ramifications as a very young adult. You know, at 12 and 15, I wouldn't have considered myself a young adult yet. But by my late teens and early 20s, I was a young adult and in a similar position of financial necessity and responsibility, helping to form a lot of what would become of my life when I lost my father. And my mom was already gone, and my I entered adult life with work as a, a necessity, and there's a benefit, in my view, to not having a safety net. And I think it's wonderful for people who do, and my children, certainly, whether I like it or not, have a safety net, but I benefited tremendously from not having one and entering the workforce with a very forced but vigorous desire to uh, survive and eventually to thrive. Yeah, no, I think that's one of my favorite things about economics is, you know, it's almost like the Darwinism of you either survive or you don't. And it's you hit the ground running once you join the workforce. 
But I totally agree. Once you start kind of getting your skin in the game, it definitely changes your perspective. Yes. So I majored in economics, actually, which is why I really enjoyed your book. You cover a lot of different perspectives from a lot of different experts throughout history. And I went to Emory, which is a very progressive, very liberally thinking school. But something that I had never thought about was this idea of humanizing economics. Like, sure, every day we talk about how, you know, your decision making contributes to a greater economy, a greater financial ecosystem. But what I really liked about your book is that you just really brought it back to the human aspect of decision making. So I guess in your book, you emphasize that a lot. How do you believe work and free enterprise improve human flourishing and and day-to-day life for everyone? Well, let me first say something about the idea of humanizing economics. You're exactly right. The book has this heavy focus on the human person. And yet, I believe that if I were being a little bit more fair, what has happened is that others have dehumanized economics. Because I think that the launching pad for economics is that it sits as the study of human action. And so when we talk about even just breaking down the sort of Greek translation of household affairs, household management, when we look at more basic economic terminology that's been used over the years, the allocation of scarce resources, well, that's a distinctly human activity. There's a verb in economics that is human action. And I take a specifically anthropological approach to that, meaning that the way in which mankind was created and some of the very distinctives of humanity sit at the center and foundation of my understanding of economics. And so you're right. I think that what I'm seeking to do is humanize economics, but I'm doing that in a sort of defensive posture because It's sort of a retaliation against those who have dehumanized economics and tried to, they love this phrase, econometrics, that have tried to turn the study into a dismal science. They think it's a a funny thing to say, but it isn't. Economics is not dismal. It's not a science. It's not math. It is effectively an understanding of the human person brought to bear in our allocation of scarce resources. And that view of the human person, that view of human nature, that view of social cooperation becomes utterly pivotal in the way one will view and apply economic thought. Yeah, no, totally. I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about the welfare and safety net system. It seems, you know, we've got these child tax credits, we've got the stimuluses and COVID-19 obviously was temporary economic policy, but it's interesting to see how that has influenced decision-making because you're right, like it was driven home that economics is the science and really it's just how humans interact within a marketplace together and it's very fluid. (laughs) And then that, and that fluidity invites a discussion about incentives Mm -hmm. and that fluidity invites us to understand the nature of human beings so that we can have a better understanding predictively, analytically. But yes, when you're looking at COVID policy, when you're looking at stimulus, or even if you just go all the way back to almost a sort of prehistoric understanding of mankind, 
because we talk about income inequality and wealth inequality as a significant problem. And I have to ask people with what you know of the human person, if we hit reset Mm. and tomorrow we divided all the capital stock in the world, divided evenly by the population of the world. And so all of the real estate and financial assets were just evenly distributed to every man, woman, and child on earth. How long would it take for us to have inequality again? 30 seconds? 60 seconds? Because it will happen. And it will happen because of human action, human preferences, human taste, human behaviors, incentives. And that rationality and that reason and that behavior, the motivations, these things must be a priori brought to our understanding of economics if we're to get this right. Absolutely. I think that's why some lawmakers really go in with the best intentions and they try to, you know, incentivize with like child care, food stamp requirements and education and training requirements. And yet some people still just would rather collect a paycheck and stay at home or, you know, just not work. And I think that you're totally right. It goes with behavior. It goes with how you were raised. If your parents made you work for a computer or not, um, definitely goes in with your perspective. But that's really cool. And it's not discussed enough. So I think going kind of along with that, I read a report from Fox. It was from 2019. And it has progressives perspective on how Republicans and the GOP have been getting basic economic measurements wrong. They've been measuring using the GDP and they haven't been focused on what they believe is, you know, looking for that equality, that humanist aspect of economics. And they even criticize, you know, tax cuts and all of that. Do you think that progressives and, you know, they're looking for that kind of discussed earlier, the reset and the making everything equal and and all of that. Do you think that their focus on healthcare subsidies, student loan debt, like forgiveness and, you know, just like focus on lifting children out of poverty through really inflated bills. Do you think that they are taking your your idea of humanizing economics the right direction? Are they focused on the right things um, or are they missing something? Well, I think that they're not just missing something, but they're really significantly making my argument for me because the measurements of the war on poverty It isn't that I want to redefine GDP. It's just that GDP is defined by what it's defined by. That's not a partisan Mm -hmm. thing. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that GDP was defined by the GOP. (laughs) Gross domestic product is what it is. It can have flaws and delays and lags, but it measures what it measures. It's formulaic. And if the article and the left right now want to say, GDP is GDP, but we don't think GDP captures the full essence of the human story. Well, I certainly am fine with that, but then what does? And I would say that when you look at the overwhelming data that supports that people who work and have purpose are happier than people who don't, that the people who have earned success have found better telos in their life and more meaning existentially than people who become a ward of the state or who live off of the largesse of others, that data is incredibly easy to come Mm -hmm. by. And I'd be happy to share it with anyone from the left or any author who says they want the same thing I do, which is a higher quality of life for humanity, a greater sense of human flourishing. 
which I think is perfectly appropriate to define in both the material and spiritual realm. Now, the problem is that isn't really what they want. What they want is a different redistribution of wealth. And unfortunately, the data here supports the view that policies focused on wealth creation do more for the disenfranchised and underprivileged than policies focused on wealth redistribution. And there is a reason why the welfare state and the nature of poverty domestically has struggled as it has 50 years after the war on poverty and the Great Society programs began. And again, this can come down to a view of human action whereby incentives matter, social structures matter, and ultimately we have tried to account for a greater provision to the needs of human beings without acknowledging the need for more productivity. We've become more consumption-driven and actually dared to think, and this is where the materialism of the left becomes so self-evident, that they believe we can give people things Mm -hmm. and make them happy. When in reality, my view is that we want to foster men and women who are made in the image of God being able to produce things and have intrinsic value that they bring to society that drives their self-esteem, their self-worth, their joy, their harmony in the society around them. And so I would argue that GDP is GDP, but I'm very happy to talk about human flourishing in a more holistic sense. I don't think they're going to like where that conversation goes, though. (laughs) No, definitely. It seems like, you know, yes, Republicans typically, they look for factors, but at the end of the day, a lot of policymakers are looking at you know, how do we get Americans more involved? How do we get them off the sidelines and involved in their communities so that they can really start to build relationships and build a life for themselves where they're not reliant on the government? I do think that, you know, what you kind of said earlier is we were put on this earth for a purpose. You know, that definitely reminds me of, you know, I'm definitely like a faithful person. And I think that a lot of you know, that determination has come from my faith of wanting to, you know, provide for myself, provide for my family, give to those that are less fortunate than me while still allowing them to, you know, like finding their own purpose. So my next question is, what kind of impact has your faith played on how you see economics and has it influenced your career in any way? Yeah, those are two different questions. I'll start with how it's influenced my view on economics because it's instrumental in my understanding of economics, and a lot of that comes down to what I talked about earlier, if one believes in what I call creational economics, uh, a view of the human person at the centerpiece, then you have to understand what was the human person created for? And what is the human person about? What do we know about the human being that then can formulate a view of social organization and a broader macroeconomic worldview. Well, because my faith teaches me that mankind was created in the image of God, in the very first book of the Bible, I am really, really blessed with an incredibly pro-growth view of economics. Because essentially what God did was tell mankind, I created you to go grow 
to cultivate the earth, to exercise dominion in it, to be a steward of this incredible creation that he bestowed to them. But see, he didn't make the creation fully developed. He made it as a sort of raw material with a bunch of potential and the economic mandate to mankind that he had created. And he created mankind uniquely from the rest of the animal kingdom. How so? Only mankind was made imago dei, made in the image of God, sharing certain attributes with the nature and character of God. Rationality, creativity, productivity, innovation, a strong moral culpability. There were factors in reason that made mankind the transcendent being relative to the rest of the creation, but not as transcendent as God, the maker of man. So he shared these certain attributes and then asked man to basically go co-create with him, to bring the potential out of the creation to actualize what he had made with potential. And that is a radical pro-growth agenda. And there, out of the theology of the garden and creational economics, comes an incredible set of principles that serve as a very coherent worldview for economic thought, one of them being the subjective theory of value. Unbelievable damage was done by the labor theory of value, not only the extreme version that Karl Marx had, but even the well-intentioned but fallacious views that Adam Smith and David Ricardo had of labor theory of value. God said he made the earth and looked around and said, yeah, this, this is good. And he made other things that this is very good. And he made us with this same attributes, being in his image, to assess things subjectively and project to goods and services, our own taste, our own appetites, our own subjective value, as opposed to some of the flawed views of value that have existed throughout history. So all this to say, at the centerpiece of my view of morality, of justice, of the kind of enlightened self-interest that I believe is paramount to a functioning free economy. All of those things are rooted in the principles of my faith. And therefore, my faith-centric economics is something not only that I don't shy away from, but that I run into because I can't get economics right apart from my faith. And then the other part of the question was whether or not I bring faith into my career. And I think it's a different question, but the answer, though, still gets to the same place. Again, the reason why I have the unwavering commitment to success in my career has never had anything to do with vain ambitions. It has always been rooted in a sense of calling, of what it is I believe God expects of me. And I I'm blessed to thoroughly enjoy my career, but I believe that that enjoyment comes as part of a virtuous cycle of having a sense of duty and obedience and then feeling rewarded in it, being able to chase passions and talents and really bring a certain work ethic that then is rewarded. And it creates this sort of ecosystem and you say, wow, you're so lucky you enjoy your job. But really, I believe the enjoyment of the job and career comes back to this sort of mentality around why we do what we do 
And then the fact that there is a reward for such obedience and hard work. And that could be true of an entry-level job. It could be true of a more flourishing career that maybe a professional enjoys and a whole lot of other aspects of human activity, including vocational activity. I think that goes right back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, welfare systems. They're not focused on us being unique individuals that have something unique to contribute to society. And just very interesting. I loved what you just said. Thanks for sharing that. And it kind of goes into my next question, actually, of, you know, the welfare system, kind of just like what I was saying, it really looks at people that need to receive welfare as almost subordinate to lawmakers and those that have a job. And I think there's obviously a large part of, you know, embracing free markets and the individuality of of people that are contributing to those. How do you believe that embracing free market factors and focusing on the human aspect of the economy rather than relying on the welfare system, how do you think that is a more successful solution than what some others that are supportive of welfare systems might, might say? Well, the conservative case for this for too long has been that the welfare state is unaffordable. And I agree with the argument, but I find it to be kind of using like our fourth or fifth best argument instead of the very best one and the one that really needs to be front and center. The number one problem with the welfare system is nothing to do with efficiency or affordability. It has to do with the dehumanization of a human being who is an actor in the welfare state, the recipient of the welfare. It is my love for the human being who is receiving welfare that causes me to critique the welfare state. The state, as a redistributor of resources, the resources earned by others in the welfare state, plays the role of stripping a human being of their dignity. I believe that mankind was made to work and produce and get joy in this. There would be toil and labor and hardship from it because of sin. This is the curse of the garden. But my point is that there is a satisfaction that can come from work. And the reason for such is that God made all of mankind with dignity. He did not make 50% of mankind with dignity. And you're the good group that goes out and works and produces and does creative things and wealth-building things and innovative things and goes home at night feeling good about what you're accomplishing. And then another 50% that receives a portion of the bounty that the first 50% generated. That is to bifurcate the human race into a caste system. And it's completely immoral. And that is the problem with the welfare state, is its view of part of humanity as outside of the joy of work and the joy of productivity, and therefore the joy of the dignity that all of mankind was made with. That's where I start my criticism of the welfare state. But then secondarily, there is a basic economic problem of how wealth is created. Welfare when being distributed by a disinterested third party like the federal government, welfare is merely a means of redistributing wealth that is generated in a society. 
But wealth is generated by producing more than we consume. And so fundamentally, the welfare state is flawed because it is not focusing on what is the immediate antidote to poverty, which is inadequate production. All that we need is more productivity. And this is true in a macro sense. Nobody could deny a country that consumes more than it produces goes broke. But it is also true in a micro sense. For any individual, the cure to poverty is to produce more than one consumes and thereby generate wealth. And the welfare state distracts us from the notion of making human beings productive. So it has both an anthropological and moral and spiritual failure, and it has an economic failure that is somewhat indisputable. By the time I get down the list of these criticisms, I fully agree it's also inefficient and a poor mechanism in the society for distributing goods and services. But I always will critique the welfare state first and foremost for how it dehumanizes people who I believe deserve love and dignity. You're so right. I hadn't even thought about that. You know, we're so focused on the cash handout and not necessarily on the productivity side and just, you know, the purpose-driven side of you know, work. Everyone, you know, has that idea that, oh, I have to go to work. Oh, I have to wake up and go to work tomorrow. But they don't realize how lucky they are because they have something to go to. They have a purpose. They're not just reliant on, as you said, a third party that really could care less at the end of the day. My last question for you, kind of going along with that. So, you know, this dignity side and of having a job and not necessarily relying on the welfare system kind of goes with, you know, just having that purpose and working for your own self-interest as well as, you know, living out your purpose. But what does it look like when individuals are self-interested and also thinking about the needs of others? Like how can you generate wealth in that way? Well, I actually wonder how one cannot generate wealth when they think about the needs of others while doing so in the construct of a sort of enlightened self-interest. In other words, if one is a maker of a good or service who wants to have a better life for them and their family and generate greater profits for the growth of their business, and they want to go about doing so by treating their customers worse, that strikes me as counterproductive. And when they are to go look at what they find to be a genuine need in humanity, and to try to serve that need to the best of their ability and to do so with a very appropriate view to the bottom line, they have this very rare situation in life where by doing better for others, they do better for themselves. The greater amount of self-sacrifice, the greater amount of patience, the greater amount of love for one's neighbor that they bring in, it all has this very interesting ability to serve a virtuous cycle, create a positive feedback loop that can grow profits, grow reputation, grow brand, grow one's reputation in their marketplace with consumers, with vendors, with suppliers, with employees. And at the same time, by driving business and reputation higher, they're growing profits. So that in the most basic of senses, recognizing an awful lot of complexity and nuance that can come up in a modernized economy, 
But at the very basic sense, that to me is the whole concept of enlightened self-interest. How can I wake up today and serve a need or multiple needs of humanity? And in so doing, profit from it. And that enlightened self-interest, I, I add that word enlightened to the famous phrase of Adam Smith, because first of all, Adam Smith would have agreed with it entirely, but too many people have characterized Smith's argument in a more Gordon Gecko-like sense, as opposed to the person who authored the book, Theory of Moral Sentiments. Smith himself understood, and this is in a tradition that included Aristotle and Aquinas and St. Augustine, for that matter, that when mankind stays focused on virtue and character, there is a greater capacity to grow their own bottom line and a greater capacity to serve mankind. You build more trust and a society that trades with one another, that trust one another, that is as lucrative as an opportunity set as has ever existed. Distrust tears down trading opportunity and tears down the ability to do commerce with one another. And so trust that comes from high character, this is the vision I have for human action. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that there has been almost a undervaluation of that trust in human aspect. I really appreciate you walking us through that idea, especially of the enlightened self-interest, because there's so much truth to it. I mean, any startup or now larger company started with an idea, and that idea was to better serve the individual's friends, family, and, and even just society and the world in general. So the free enterprise system, there's just so much beauty to it. There's so much innovation, and it really does allow all of us to live up to the expectations and purpose that God's given us and really have some dignity in the free marketplace. So I really appreciate you walking us through that. And thanks for discussing your new book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. If you haven't picked up a copy, I definitely recommend it because David explains so many complex economic theories and really breaks them down and shows you the human aspect behind all of that. So thanks for joining us on the show today and look forward to talking again soon. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening to Built to Win, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the Foundation for Government Accountability, a nonprofit organization helping millions achieve the American dream. To learn more about our work or our experts, visit www.thefga.org and tell us what you think on Twitter at Built to Win Podcast. Views and opinions expressed by guests on Built to Win do not necessarily reflect the official position of the Foundation for Government Accountability and are not intended to advocate for or against the passage of any legislation or ballot initiative or to support or oppose any candidate for elected office. 